0: So, <clears throat> you remember last week, we, we learned about, um, looking in the previous uh, chapter, we learned about some truths um, of what was taught there. Um, we learned about how uh, Paul uh, mentioned this good work that God had begun in us, um, and how that would be completed on the day of Jesus Christ. So we learned all of these really important foundational truths, Um, which are going to gird us for going forward and for standing fast in the gospel. But the thing is, what happens happens when that theory is challenged and when obstacles seem to come in the pathway? And we're now at the point where Paul, um, he's had an incredibly fruitful ministry. If you think about Paul, you think about all the things he's achieved for God, you think about um, the way he's kind of revolutionized the world and the gospel has gone forth, and he's got all these new believers in different places. But now he finds himself um, imprisoned, incarcerated in Rome. And he's waiting for Caesar. um, He's waiting to stand um, before Caesar, and he's got the threat of execution hanging over him, Um, just like a sword of Damocles. He knows that at any moment, his life could end. And he must be feeling to himself at this point, what has my ministry come to? What has everything that I've done for God and the way God has used me, what's it it come to now? Here I am in this place. But not only that, but also the people who had followed Paul, the people he had been a father to in the faith, it must have been pretty discouraging for them as well, mustn't it? Because they saw Paul, the man that they believed that God had used, and now, rather than being blessed, they'd seen before that God had been able to deliver him, and he'd miraculously delivered him from jail, but now Paul is in this situation, and he's basically awaiting execution. He's like a criminal. So he probably wonders, what is going to become... To the gospel? What is becoming, what is going to be the end of my life's work, what I've done? So that is the situation that Paul finds himself in. But as we go through uh, the passage, we find that despite this, despite Paul being in this uh, situation, that his concern is one thing his concern is one thing, and that is the furtherance of the gospel. If you look through here, I think it's amazing if you look through this passage, he hardly ever talks about his own uh, situation. He's in this situation and he hasn't seen the Philippians for a while. If it was you or I, we'd probably be writing a letter say, talking about how we're doing and what's been going on. Um, people tend to do that, don't they, in their Christmas letters. I don't know whether you receive Christmas letters, but you know, so-and-so's got a pony and so-and-so's done something else and blah, 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 and... Unfortunately, not many people in my family send Christmas letters, but they are very painful, aren't they, at times? But but Paul's not sending a a Christmas letter. He's not updating them on his situation here. His only concern is the gospel. He's not concerned about how he's being furthered. He's concerned about how the gospel is being furthered and advanced. If you look through this, you see that he says here, but I want you to know, brethren that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. And Paul is very understated here, isn't he, when he's talking about the things that have happened to him. Um, I mean, he's kind of, he's been falsely accused, um, he's been beaten, um, he's been um, illegally assaulted, he's had a sham trial at the hands of a tyrant, and yet he just describes it as, the things which have happened to me. So I think he's kind of understating the case of really what's happened to him. And, but he then says it's actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. It's turned out in that it's caused the gospel um, to be more widely heard and the name of Jesus to be more widely heard. In fact, the name of Jesus has been heard right in the center of the Roman establishment. So, despite the fact he was sitting there in this prison, in chains, the gospel had gone into the heart of the Roman Empire, and its influence was now at a level where it was unsurpassed. But there's two ways here. There's two ways, if you look at these verses, um, in which the gospel has potentially been hindered. First of all, the things which happened to Paul Could have potentially hindered the gospel in that he could have been tempted to have been to give up and be very demoralized, as you and I would be. If we found ourselves in prison, I would be tempted to be a little bit fed up and wondering what was going on. So this could potentially have discouraged Paul, it could potentially um, have dragged him down. But actually, instead of that, um, he is rejoicing in the midst of this situation. Um, but not only is he rejoicing, um, but it has made a platform for the gospel in the heart of the Roman Empire. And the other thing was that during Paul's imprisonment here, he also wrote, he penned the, what we call the prison epistles. So Colossians, Philemon, uh, Philippians and Galatians, he wrote all these whilst he was in prison. So the gospel was going, um, was going forward despite that situation. But there was also another hindrance, Um, Another potential hindrance to the gospel going forward in that situation. And that hindrance was that other rival preachers, Paul's uh, compatriots, um, were now seeing Paul being behind bars as an opportunity for them to enlarge their own ministries. So finally they got this pesky person, Paul, out of the Um, limelight. He seemed to be enjoying all the limelight, having this really fruitful ministry and people being blessed and people were being um, saved and coming to God and they were a bit jealous to be honest Um, and they they were jealous and they were just pleased that Paul was out of the limelight and so now it was an opportunity for their own ministries um, to take off the ground. And so this too, you would think that if you had a group of people who were preaching the gospel just out of jealousy and just out of rivalry, that that would really hinder the gospel going ahead. But amazingly, Paul says that even despite this, some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains but the latter out of love knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way whether in pretense or in truth Christ is preached and in this I rejoice yes and will rejoice. So Paul's only concern was that Christ was preached. Amazingly it doesn't even matter why they were preaching Christ. We always think we have to you know, and obviously Paul would have preferred, I think, that they were preaching out of pure motives rather than just preaching to kind of, um, you know, preaching to uh, undermine him. Um, but his overriding concern was that Christ was preached, and I think we can learn a lot from that fact as well, um, <clears throat> in, from two points of view. First of all, we have a tendency to maybe judge other people who are preaching the gospel. And we kind of think, I wonder why they're preaching what they're preaching. I wonder why they're doing that. Are their motives pure? Are their motives entirely for Christ? But Paul says, it's not the motive. As long as the message is that authentic message that saves people and brings them to Christ, my overriding concern is that Christ is preached. But also, I don't know about you, but oftentimes... We look into our own hearts and we look into our motivations for, for anything we do. I think if you look into your heart and you look into your motivation for anything that you think you're doing for a good purpose, whether that's work or whether that's in your families or whether that's ministry, if you look hard and long enough, you'll probably find that there are a mixture of motives in your heart that it isn't 100% good or 100% pure. But I think that this is an encouragement because it shows us that we should step forward in the things God is calling us to, despite those motives being mixed. The reality is that this side of heaven, before we see Jesus face to face, our motivations are always going to be partly good and partly bad. And obviously we, we ask God to change our hearts and to purify our hearts and to make our motives more in line with his motives. Um, but the thing is even when our motives are not 100% pure God is bigger than that and God can bring out the furtherance of the gospel um, despite our motives not being um, 100% pure and we have to be careful at judging other people's motives as long as Christ is preached as long as the authentic gospel is preached that's the key thing Um, however having said that It is vital that the message that we're preaching is the authentic message. That's the key thing. Um, If you look on the screen behind me, Paul talks about this in Galatians. And he talks about the fact that if we preach any other message than the message of Jesus and him crucified, then let us be accursed. Let that person be accursed. So the message um, is non-negotiable. But Paul is saying that the motives can sometimes be mixed. But despite that, the gospel goes forward and the gospel makes progress. So we just see Paul's heart here throughout this epistle. We see that everything he talks about is is for the gospel. He talks about the furtherance um, of the gospel in verse 12. In verse 14, he speaks about being more bold to speak the word without fear. In, In verse 17, he speaks about being appointed for the defense of the gospel In verse 18, he speaks about rejoicing because Christ is preached. And in verse 20, he speaks about Christ being magnified in his body, whether by life or by death. So Paul sees success in terms of the gospel. Paul sees success in terms of that gospel progressing. We often see success in different ways, don't we? We often see success in terms of are we... Are we achieving our five-year plan? I don't know how many of you have a five-year plan for the future, but a lot of us, some of us do. Um, and, and we often see success in terms of getting our goals met—the goals we have for our personal lives, the goals we have for our careers, and the goals we have for everything else. But God, but Paul sees um, sees success in terms of Christ being preached. That's the overall motivation for his life. Christ is preached. I wonder whether we, we do that each day. I wonder whether if we, we think to ourselves, oh, you know, have I had a successful day today at the end of the day? We tend to look at it purely in terms of how the day has affected us, in terms of have we got the things we wanted done? Um, have, have we been happy? Have people treated us well? But Paul got to the end of each day and he thought, how has this day, how has it furthered the gospel of Christ? How has this week, ...furthered the gospel of Christ? How has this year... ...furthered the gospel of Christ? And that was his one overriding concern... ...he'd lost that concern for himself... ...and Christ had just become... ...absolutely preeminent in his mind... ...and in his thinking. Everything was Christ-centered... ...it was Christ-centered ambition. There's nothing wrong with having ambition for life... ...we sometimes talk about ambition... ...being a bad thing, don't we? Um, Or we can give that impression... But actually to have an ambition which is Christ-centered, to want to see Jesus magnified and to want to see his name honoured is a worthy ambition to have. And that was the all-consuming ambition of Paul's life. And so despite the obstacles that he was having, despite the situation that he found himself in, this will be my first point, seeming obstacles which actually further the gospel. All of these situations could further the gospel, despite the fact they didn't seem to initially. But notice as well the second point about about Paul's, um, about Paul's imprisonment. What was the second um, uh, effect of it? It says in verse 14, it says that most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So, not only did the whole palace guard hear about the gospel, not only um, did Paul write a significant part of the New Testament, not only was he rejoicing in this situation, but also ordinary Christians were strengthened and encouraged to witness more for Jesus. They were they encouraged, the ordinary brethren. These weren't people who were uh, preachers necessarily. Um, They weren't people who occupied um, a particular position, but they were just brethren, just ordinary Christians in the Lord. When they saw the fact that despite Paul being in jail, that God was still looking after him, God hadn't abandoned him, that Paul was overflowing with a joy and and an expectation of what God was, was doing for him, when they saw what God was doing in Paul's life, they were encouraged themselves in their own lives to step out. And they're saying, well, because Paul can do that when he's imprisoned and in jail, Paul can do that when he's, um, when he's and, you know, possibly facing death itself, so I can do that in my life as well. And the same thing happens to us today, doesn't it? We see people like Saeed, and we see people like Nabil Qureshi, and we see the fact that they stand in fear of their lives every moment of the day. And if they can stand in fear of their lives every moment of the day, and if they can endure beatings, and if they can endure these very real threats, then just maybe, you know, I could mention something about the Christmas service to one of my friends at work. Maybe I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> so, so there are ways in which there are ways in which um, there are ways in which seeing Paul suffer. Um, and seeing these other Christians go through severe suffering can be an encouragement to us. It makes us confident, doesn't it? It makes us confident to go out and share the gospel. Um, so that was, another, uh, that was another feature, another effect um, of, what, um, of what Paul uh, did. So strengthening the brethren, strengthening the brethren despite being imprisoned. You know, some of us feel that we're in prison even though we're not in prison. Some of us feel, or some of you feel, that you're in prison because of your circumstances that you find yourself in. Um, I don't know what those circumstances are, but maybe you're waiting for a release date. Maybe you feel in prison because you're studying at the moment and you're thinking, I want to be I want to be used by God, I want to be used for his kingdom, but I just need to get this degree out of the way first. Or maybe you feel imprisoned as a parent. Maybe you're thinking, I just need the kids to get older and then I can start doing some gospel ministry as well. Why can't they just grow up? And I don't know. <laughs> there's, there's various ways in which we can feel imprisoned, even though we don't have physical change like Paul did. But do you know what? Paul was in that prison... And he was probably chained to someone for a number of hours every day. But do you think he wasted any opportunity to tell that person about Jesus? Do you think he wasted any opportunity? We don't have to wait until we're released into some kind of mission necessarily. You're on mission now. We're all on mission now. Um, in, In our families, in our workplaces, we're on mission for Jesus. So some of you are waiting for that release date what I want to say to you this morning is that you don't need to wait for a release date in the future so that the gospel can be furthered. And that release date is now in the situation that you're in. And you can show the gospel in that situation that you find yourselves in at the moment. You don't have to wait for the future. Um, and the key thing here as well that really flows out of this whole passage, I think, sandwiched in the middle, is this joy, isn't it? If you look in verse 18, uh, Paul says, What then, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. So, sandwiched right in the middle of this epistle, right in the middle of Paul's sufferings, is this joy. Is this joy. One of the passages I've not done this at all in order today, I'm sorry. But one of the passages um, was that Peter knew about this joy as well. Peter knew about this joy and he spoke about a joy inexpressible, a joy which can't even be put into words that was flowing out of him. Um, I don't know whether you've ever seen people like that. I've seen people like that a few times in my life um, who seem to be going through circumstances which you just wouldn't be joyful in. You just would not be joyful in those circumstances. You know, you're very um, ill, you can hardly uh, walk. Um, everything's going wrong for you, you suffered loss. And yet they're exuding this joy, they're exuding this peace and this trust in God. Um, and and that is what Paul was exuding in this situation. He was exuding this joy right in the middle. He was joyful because Christ was being preached. He was joyful because the gospel was being and expanded and extended. And how do we get that joy, I guess? How do we get that joy? The key is it's a matter of perspective. It's a matter of perspective. So far as our perspective is centered on our own situation and what we're going through, we'll never have that joy. But as far as, our, as, far as we're looking at the bigger picture, and we're looking about how Christ. is being exalted and how his name is being glorified and how the gospel is being extended, then we too can tap into that joy inexpressible, a deeper joy um, than the passing things that we we go through day to day. It's funny, isn't it, how often being filled with the Spirit is associated with joy, isn't it? If you look at Galatians, you find that joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul knows about this joy, joy through suffering, Joy despite pain, joy despite difficult circumstances. Um, And that leads us really on to um, my third point, really. Um, So first point, really, is that these seeming obstacles actually further the gospel. The second point is that these seeming obstacles strengthen and encourage the brethren. And the third obstacle is that there is a big-seeming obstacle which brings greater joy gain a big obstacle which brings greater gain the biggest obstacle to most of us in most areas of our life is the obstacle of death isn't it Um, it seems to kind of um, hang over um, all of people's achievements and the things that they strive after in life and it kind of promises to bring an end to everything that people have spent their life achieving and that's the same in every field isn't it if you think of footballers, I mean, they don't have very long careers, do they really? They get to the age of about 30 and then a footballer is pretty much finished on the scrap heap and they've got to find something else to do. Like maybe, I don't know, writing autobiographies like David and Victoria Beckham or something. But their, their period of success doesn't last very long, does it? Before it all comes to an end. Um, or even in whatever field of life, or if you're an academic or whatever, there's a period where you submit that last research paper and it comes to an end. Um, but Paul says that for him, death isn't an end, it's a beginning. And it brings him a greater gain. It brings him a deeper and a greater gain. And I think that the reason for that is, is, is twofold, really. Really? First of all, if we look in verses 19 and 20, it says, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. So the first reason that that death was a greater gain for Paul, for him specifically, he knew that he had nothing to be ashamed of. If you look at um, 1 Timothy, uh, 4 verses 6 to 8 should be above me. Paul, when he's getting towards the end of his life, he says these words, which I always think are really moving. I don't know why. It almost half makes me want to cry for some reason. But, but he says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I fought the good fight. I finished the, the race. I've kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. So he knows as he gets to the end of his life, he knows that this crown is laid up for him. He knows he doesn't have anything to be ashamed of before Jesus. And he knows that as he passes through this this world and this dimension into heaven, he knows that Jesus is going to be there and he's going to say to him, well done, you good and faithful servant. Well done, you good and faithful servant. And so for Paul, death is going to be gain. It's going to be gain because he doesn't have any reason to be ashamed in front of Christ. Death will be gain. You know, Jesus said, didn't he, that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And and I just really pray that we would be people who would be building up treasure in heaven, that our heart would be in heaven, not fixed on this world, but our heart would be in heaven. Um, But the second reason um, that Paul um, knew that death was gain was that he knew that it would bring him a greater intimacy with Jesus. He knew it would be a greater intimacy with Jesus. Um, Do you remember before in... um, um, 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about this experience that he had a sort of a, almost like a, almost like a kind of a, I don't know about near-death experience, but some kind of really odd but amazing, profound experience when he was taken um, out of this um, present situation and he was actually brought to the throne room of God. And uh, it says there that he had... Such an experience that he said, I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, God knows. He was caught up into paradise, and he heard inexpressible words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. So in some ways we could say, well, it's very easy for Paul to say that, that, that dying is game, because he's already seen what it's, what it's going to be like. <laughs> but <clears throat> I think that the point is, although that is the case, there's so much we don't know about heaven or we don't know about what things will be like. The Bible does teach us certain things about the new heavens and the new earth and how eventually it's all going to be. But the reality is there's a lot of how it's going to work out, you know, what the scenery will be like, what the buildings will be like, what we'll be doing the majority of the time. That's actually reasonably unclear to us. And the Bible doesn't really tell us a huge amount about that. Um, But for Paul, it was just knowing that Jesus was there. It was just knowing that Jesus was there. Just knowing that his presence is there. It says in Revelation, it talks about the lamb uh, being there. It talks about the lamb being there. And it says that there's no need for a light in heaven because the radiance of the lamb covers everything. The radiance of Jesus, his presence, covers everything. So it wasn't so much about where he was going, but as about who he was going to meet when he got there. Who he was going to meet when he got there. And if you think for Paul, really, this was his whole life. His whole life, he'd been pressing on towards Jesus, to know Jesus more, to become more intimate with Jesus, a deeper experience with Jesus Christ, more of his joy, more of his peace, more of his presence in his life. And his only ambition was to share that with others, to share that gospel so that others could know Jesus too. And and so heaven, really, is just... It's a consummation of a life which is lived that way. It's the consummation of a life which is lived that way. He says, Yet indeed I count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. That I may gain Christ, that I might know him in that way. So all, all of that, you know, um, all of that. And so Paul gets to this stage, if we look on through the passage, he gets to the stage where, um, on the back of that, he almost gets to this stage where you, you could think that Paul is having some kind of mental breakdown in a way because he almost seems to be sort of verging on the brink, in some ways of reading it, of contemplating uh, uh, suicide. He says, you know, "'For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain, "'but I live, if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labour, "'yet what I shall choose I cannot tell.' I'm hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And it's, at first glance, it's quite a strange way to think, because it almost does think that Paul is actually going through some kind of breakdown almost. But these aren't the words of a man who is driven to suicide because of Despair. These aren't uh, the words of a man who is just tired of life and just fatigued of life. These are the words of a man who sees a better country. He sees a better country awake uh, awaiting him, and he has a yearning for that country, and he has a yearning to be with Christ. It says in Hebrews, um, it says, "But now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God." for he has, a, he has prepared a city for him. And Paul is literally in a ravine. The language in the original text states that Paul has these two possibilities, you know, going to be with Jesus on the one hand and remaining um, uh, on earth with the Philippians on the other hand. And the language almost suggests that he's in a ravine, he's in a sort of a deep Um, crevice with these two options he doesn't know which one to choose he's that kind of conflicted and he's that torn because the pull of heaven and the pull of that country and the pull of Jesus is he feels that so powerfully like a magnet in his being I wonder how whether we feel that I wonder whether we feel a pull um, or a desire to be with with Christ at times I wonder whether we actually ever feel that pull or whether we're just so Earthly-minded, and we're just so focused on all the the bits and pieces that we deal with day by day that that's not even a conflict for us. There was an old old, um, Christian chorus, and it says, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And that was the situation that Paul found himself in. So, just going on, uh, we look, um, we continue on through the passage and we find that Paul, he, despite feeling this pull towards heaven, that he realised that it was more needful for him to remain for the Philippian Christians. He knew that it was more needful for him to continue to minister to them and to continue to encourage them. It would have been better for him, have, he would have been much happier to be in heaven with Jesus, but it was better for the Philippians to continue. Um, And then finally, if we just go on and look at how, on the basis of that, Paul exhorts the believers. He exhorts the Philippians um, in the last few verses there of chapter 1. He says, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And the language in the, part, the first part of verse 27, really, is the language of a citizen. It's talking about letting their conduct, being worthy of the gospel of Christ. So Philippi, you remember, was, it was a colony. They were very proud to be Roman. And they would have wanted to have lived in such a way that they were worthy citizens of the Roman Empire. But Paul says to them, be worthy citizens. In light of what I've told you, um, about about the gospel about the kingdom and about the preeminence of that be worthy citizens of jesus' kingdom be worthy citizens of jesus' kingdom, let your conduct be the conduct which is befitting for someone who is a citizen of the kingdom of heaven who is a colony of heaven and then he goes on and he moves away from this um, from this image of uh, citizenship and then he talks about um, an image really of of, um, of a military image and do you remember in Rome that um, they used to have these um, kind of like tortoise formations where everyone would kind of you'd all like um, you'd have like all the shields on top of you and then at the sides of you and it'd be like about eight men wide and eight men round the edge um, and, and if you were in that formation of like a, a tur- turtle tortoise formation then you could keep moving forward and you would basically be invincible. So you could just go and like take these whole uh, cities and no one and nothing could stand in your way. And that's really the image of what um, Paul is talking about here. He's saying, I hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel and not in any way terrified by your adversaries. So that unity, that meant that the church could go forward in that tertus, tertus, torto, tortoise, 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 turtle formation and they could really um, they could really just kind of stampede on everything um, that stood in their way one mind one spirit striving together for the faith of the gospel so they didn't need Knowing that, they didn't need to be terrified by their adversaries or their enemies because they knew that their success was guaranteed. And that's an important lesson for us as a church, isn't it? We need to be like that kind of um, tortoise formation. Um, you know, Some of us having the shields over our heads, some of them having them um, by, by, by our sides and continue making progress um, for the gospel. Um, but we'll only do that as we're unified together and that we have that same mind um, and that same spirit. Um, and then, really, verse 29, he talks to them again about, about suffering uh, for the gospel that's been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here is in me. So these believers, they shared in Paul's suffering. Um, it, it says, doesn't it, um, earlier, that they were partakers um, with Paul. We said earlier in chapter 1. Um, in the defence and confirmation of the gospel, there was a sense in which they'd shared in that suffering with Paul. Um, And so they shared in that together and they shared that experience um, uh, with with Christ and they knew that believing in Jesus means suffering for Jesus and be willing to suffer for Jesus. So, that's, um, I can never work out how long I've spoken for, Um, but, but really, that's what I wanted to say this morning. I mean, I think that this is an amazing—it's an amazing—it's um, an amazing passage, really. It's about, despite all the obstacles that are coming towards us, despite all the things that threaten to hinder the progress of the gospel, the gospel of Jesus is going to go going to keep going forward, despite um, those, um, despite those obstacles. And the gospel continues um to, to progress. And even that ultimate enemy, the enemy of death, even death is going to result in a greater gain for us. It's going to result in a greater experience of Jesus um, and a more satisfying and a more intimate relationship with him. So, um, one of the other things I just, one of the other challenges I did just want to mention as well um, before we, before we go, is it, it, Paul says, I'm always amazed by those words of Paul in verse 20, and he says, um, with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. And I think that there's such, those words are so challenging, because what Paul is really saying there is he's saying, Lord, can you just squeeze out of my life all of the glory that you can for your kingdom. Can you squeeze out of my life, ring me dry, and squeeze out all of the glory for my life for your kingdom? That's what Paul is really saying there. Whether it's by life or by death, whatever we go through, ring ring my life and bring out of it all of the glory that you can for your kingdom.